Hi, my name is Lore. The Old Testament reading is found in Proverbs 24, 13 through 14. My child, eat honey for it is good. The honeycomb is sweet in your mouth. Know that wisdom is like that for your whole being. If you find it, there is a future. Your hope won't be cut off. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Ephesians 5, 15 through 16. So be careful to live your life wisely, not foolishly. Take advantage of every opportunity because there are evil times. The word of the Lord. If you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Everybody who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise builder who built his house on bedrock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against that house. It didn't fall because it was firmly set on bedrock. But everybody who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice will be like a fool who built a house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against that house. It fell and was completely destroyed. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask now that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, convict us, but change us above all so that we would be transformed into the image of your Son. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, New Life Downtown. I am joined this morning by Pastor Holly Packham, also happens to be my wife. Yes, just very good, very good. Uh, We're in this series on Proverbs that we have called this summer, we've called it How Do I? And Proverbs uh, very often seems to address some of these questions we have about life. How do I uh, think about money? How do I enjoy my life? How do I cultivate friendships? And today we're talking about how do I or how do we raise our children? And I just want to give a a quick caveat and and then uh, let Holly uh, introduce a couple of things about the topic as well. And the first is this. Proverbs, as you've maybe recognized throughout the series, Proverbs doesn't read the way the Ten Commandments read, reads, for example. It doesn't read the way Romans reads. In fact, one of the tricks or the art, I should say, of reading the Bible is that the Bible is a collection of different kinds of genre, different types of literature. It's God speaking. It's the Word of God, but some of it comes in letters, some of it comes in stories, some of it comes in uh, commandments, some of it comes in sayings. And Proverbs is a collection of wisdom sayings. And in case you're like, uh-oh, is this some sort of postmodern, relativistic reading of the Bible? No, actually, the people of God, the, the Israelites themselves, classified the Old Testament into three categories. There was law, Torah, there was prophets, and then there was writings. And writings is very often their reflections, their divinely inspired reflections and sayings. And Proverbs, the way wisdom literature works is, you can write this down if you'd like, wisdom literature is generally true sayings that require wisdom about how and when to apply it. And you're like, what? It's the Bible. Come on. No, generally true sayings that require wisdom about how and when to apply. In fact, Proverbs 24, one just quick example, says, um, rebuke a fool in his folly, lest he, you know, head to his destruction. The very next verse says, don't rebuke a fool or else he'll hate you. And you're like, wait a second, contradictions in the Bible. I thought the Bible had no errors. It's not contradictions unless you approach it with a fixed either or Western sort of mindset. In the Eastern mindset, it's like, we know both of those things are true. Just depends on who the fool is. 
right? So, so you, you just you have to discern. You'll never, um, you'll never get out of having to discern. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll say that's enough about that. Okay, what are we talking about today, babe? What are we talking about with parenting today? Well, first I want to just say that it's we come to you, you know, not as experts in this topic, but as ones who are, you know, trying to continue to grow ourselves. We've so we've been married for almost twenty years, and twenty years parents, next month. Yeah, twenty almost twenty years. Yeah, well. <laughs> And been raising kids for over 16 years, so we've definitely made a lot of mistakes and, you know, done things and had to switch paths along the way. And so we're trying to come to you today just on this path with you, sharing some of the things that we've gleaned from scripture and other teachers and wise people along the way. So good. And I also want to say, you know, I reckon we recognize that some of you in the room, your children are out of the home. You've, you've raised them, and we've learned from you, from many of you in the room. And, but we also understand that once a parent, always a parent, right? And so our hope is that, that we can, this is a conversation starter, and you might, there might be something today that you're like, oh, that's interesting, I want to think about that. Others of you, you are, you know, raising kids, you're in the home right now, and, and then there's still others of you that uh, don't uh, have children, either because that hasn't been part of your story as a married couple yet, or... Um, you're not married and you, and you don't have kids. Others of you are single parents and you're doing this alone. You're like, gosh, this, this, it'd be nice to have some sort of a partner uh, in all of this. So we recognize that people are hearing this in all kinds of different seasons and with all kinds of different uh, contexts. And some of my suggestions maybe for those of you that, that aren't uh, parents is to think of this as you, you are, uh, we are all somebody's child. And so we can hear what the intention is for the Proverbs for children, for a person growing up. We are God's child. Uh, what does it mean to grow in wisdom before the Father? Um, others of you, you might be like, you know what, I'm just going to take notes so that I can prepare for the season when, Lord willing, we do become parents, you know. Um, others of you will, might be like, you know what, after the sermon, I never realized how hard being a parent was. I'm going to go help my married friends with kids a bit more. Yeah, they will love you for that. Do that. Yes, do that. Exactly. Okay, we're going to structure this this morning in three questions, and the first is the goal. What is the goal of parenting? What are we talking about when we get into this? I think many of us think it's about behavior management, especially when our kids are young. You know, it's like, oh, they're running around or climbing the walls, or I've just got to control their behavior. Um, I've got to, or maybe we think about ourselves, like I've got to protect my reputation. Um, I can think of things last week, yesterday maybe even, where I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so embarrassing. I would really like my child to just stay right here and not be running all over like crazy. Um, But I think we'd like to talk today about how um, really the the Lord has a grace-based approach for us. Yeah, and so let's look at some of the Proverbs about the goal here. Maybe the most famous one, Proverbs 22, verse 6. Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Now again, this it's not a commandment, but it's also not a guarantee, right? Generally true saying. So some of you, your kids are grown, and you're like, I did train them off. I did start them off on the right path. But man, where where are they now? And every child has to make their own decisions of faith. So these aren't like guarantees. These aren't formulas right? But, but Proverbs is interesting. Right here in chapter 1, verse 7 through 9, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my child, your father's instruction. And do not reject your mother's teaching, for they are a garland for your head and pendants for your neck. 
repeatedly in Proverbs, if you were to do a word search on like BibleGateway.com or whatever, every time you see the word child or children, very closely in that same sentence is the word listen or hear or incline your ear or be attentive or pay attention. In fact, it's one of the ways to think about the entire collection of sayings in Proverbs is that it's one generation imparting their wisdom to the next. And that's why whether or not you have biological children, you could say, oh, that's what this whole book is about. And in fact, the connection here is that the young person is supposed to listen and learn. And so we, we might summarize it this way. The goal of parenting is that they will first listen to wisdom, but ultimately that they will love wisdom. The goal is that they will listen but ultimately that they will love. So one, one quick scripture, Proverbs 24, 13 through 14, my child eats honey for it is good. Not my child eat honey because I said so. <laughs> my child eat honey because I'm your daddy and I told you to. My child eat honey because it's good. The honeycomb is sweet in your mouth. Know that wisdom is like that for your whole being. If you find it, there's a future. Your hope won't be cut off. Yeah, I think we, our goal here is we want to teach them um, and encourage them to love God and others well. And we know this is the greatest commandment, you know, to love the Lord with everything inside of us and to love others well. And so this applies so well to parenting. But I think the process doesn't always look pretty, does it? It's not like we just tell our child something once and we can expect them to do it and move on. But no, we have to continue to teach and teach because... They're young and they don't always get it and they need us to keep, you know, they're, they're foolish often when they're young and we need us to keep saying the same thing again. So it's a process to keep teaching them, to keep training them. Um, our kids will make mistakes, but I think what we can think about as parents or spiritual parents, grandparents is how, how will we respond to that? Will we be reactive or will we deal with our own stuff when we come to our children or will we get down and look them in the eye and bend low and extend the kind of grace and mercy to them that we really want God to extend to us. Yeah, yeah which, which then leads to the second kind of section of the talk, the path. So we know the goal, but what's the path? Like, what is the path of discipleship for our children? What is the path of discipleship? And repeatedly in, in Proverbs, you, it talks about discipline. Uh, in fact, Proverbs 19.18 says, discipline your children for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to their death. Proverbs 29, 17, discipline your children and they will give you peace and they will bring the delights that you desire. But here's where we have to really stop for a moment. I just want to do a little thought experiment. When, when I say the word discipline, what comes to mind? Punishment. Correct. Punishment, spanking. We're not talking about that. In fact, as one commentator says, repeatedly in the Proverbs, the preferred method is training. It's teaching, it's instruction. And even for us English speakers, discipline is related to the word discipleship. And a disciple is a student. Discipleship is teaching and instruction. So discipline is actually about discipleship. And discipleship is about intentional training. Discipline is actually about discipleship and discipleship is about intentional training. Now, 
Holly, uh, you know, is the pastor of parenting ministries here at New Life Downtown, but she's also trained as a counselor. And so I wanted her to spend some extended time. We were talking about the pathway of discipling our kids and maybe even some of the stages of development. Yeah, so when we think about intentional training, there's, there's so much that could be said here. But if, if we think of an example of um, maybe when our child does something that... Um, we, we don't like or we want them to go a different direction. I think one of the things we can do is step back and first think about ourselves, like how, what kind of a state am I in to address this? Am I in a reactive state? Am I angry? Um, or can I come to them um, with a peaceful presence? So we, we want to try to get there first or, or wait. Um, we can also think about with our kids um, what's going on with them. You know, have, have I as a mom been like dragging them all over town to Costco and errands all day and they're melting down and I'm going, what's going on? Why are you doing that? It's like, well, I mean, I've kind of contributed it's to kind of this. what I want to do when I'm dragged around Costco for a few hours. <laughs> have a meltdown, right? So, so I think that gives us some perspective when we're going into how are we going to kind of deal with this, this situation. Um, you know, are they hungry? Are they tired? Like, are there needs that need to be met before we can even get to the teaching part, the instruction part? Um, I think we can also ask them how they're feeling. We, we might think we know by the way that they're acting or what they're saying, but, you know, are they angry about what's happening? Are they sad? Are they frustrated? Are they anxious? But doing that first before we get to the instruction helps them to know, I see you. Um, I'm, I want to validate what you're going through because if, if they're just going to ignore us if we don't, if, you know, if we just get to this is what you need to be doing. You need to sit here. You need to, you know, do all this kind of things. Um, and then also I think something that's helpful to know about the brain is for a child or even an older person sometimes that when we get really angry, our brain fires in such a way that we, we can shut down. We can either go into fight or flight and really nothing good can be accomplished when if I as a parent am in that state, if my child is in that state. And so sometimes taking a break um, just you know, me taking a step out or my child just might need to, you know, walk down the street or run up and down the stairs or just sort of break up those pathways so that they can start to think clearly. And then we can get to, if if there's, if the time is right, if we're both calm and in a peaceful state, we can get to having that conversation about, okay, okay, I'll give you an example. So when, um, one of my oldest was probably about three or four. We would, when our kids stopped napping, we would do rest time. So our younger ones would take a nap and the older ones would start to do something we called rest time. So they would, you know, sit in their room and just lay down or read a book or play or whatever, just so we all had a little midday break. Well, one day I came into um, one of my girl's rooms and she'd gotten a lotion bottle out of the bathroom and dumped lotion and took it with her hands, literally wiped it all over everything like the carpet her dresser like I mean you can imagine it was just like ah, like just inside like in rage I was inside I actually was so mad that I sat down and just started crying I'm like what do I do you know those moments Ah, so awful um but I, I had to get to a calm place and just kind of let her be before I could come back and explain why this was not a wise choice, why we don't do this. And, you know, I could have, I think sometimes when we're so mad, then that's this time when we react so strongly, when we're the most intense or we say, don't you ever do that again, or we give a consequence. But I really wanted to come and sit with her and meet her and explain, like, this is why we don't do this and why I don't want you to do this again. And I think sometimes we underestimate that in small kids, that their ability to really get what we're saying versus giving sometimes an unconnected consequence 
I think often doesn't really promote and provoke in them the desire to do something different the next time. Mm-hmm. Why don't you talk a little bit about the stages stuff and babies? Yeah. So let's just talk a little bit about, there's so much to be said about child development, but I do think it helps us a bit in our perspective in figuring out what do we do in these different stages of our kids' lives. So for babies, I think God really designed them to be dependent on us, right? That that, that really is part of the design. Um, sometimes as parents, that's really hard. We, you know, we're, we're exhausted and we're spent and sometimes it's nice to feel like, or we wish they wouldn't always be as dependent as they are. But I think in that design, there's that possibility for that secure attachment to be made that every time that we, they cry, whether that's for food or for needing to be changed or just that emotional connection that they're wanting, even as, even as a baby, that when we meet those needs, when we pick them up, um, that attachments continue to be reaffirmed. Which just to pause for a second and say, you know, sometimes in Christian circles, there's been great damage done because of this, the doctrine of um, being born with a sinful nature. And so sometimes because of that doctrine, that's extrapolated into parenting advice that is terrible, 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 terrible parenting advice. And that is to say that when the baby cries, it's because it's their sin nature. And this is, this is really, I mean, I'm glad to hear the gasp, but actually that teaching is pretty, pretty prevalent. And, and it ignores a couple of things. One, Proverbs itself distinguishes between wickedness and foolishness. Wickedness is an outright willful departure from the ways of the Lord. Foolishness is it's just dumb. You don't know any better yet. You haven't grown up. You haven't matured. And parenting foolishness as if it's wickedness can actually turn a heart hard. And think about how many times in the psalmist, another kind of section of the writings where the psalmist says, I called and you ignored me. I called and you rebuked me for being so needy. I called and you answered. That's secure attachment. So that's what what Holly's talking about. It actually happens on a deep spiritual level too where how do we have the confidence that every time we call, God will answer us. A lot of times it comes as when we were kids and we needed something and our parent didn't say, how dare you need me? So even though we want to say that. Okay, toddlers. <laughs> toddlers. Yeah, so moving on to talk a little bit about toddlers and young kids. Um, I think there's so much that they need to learn from us, obviously, right? That training is required, um, and so much of it comes from modeling. Not not so much of what we say, but especially when they're young, they're, they're watching us. And so they're learning how to, you know, soothe their own emotions by what, what do we do when we get upset or when we get scared or sad. They're watching us with our behavior. How do we respond to things? How do we treat other people? Do we treat them with respect. Um, these are all things that they're, we're teaching them just by modeling. And I think children can also, they cooperate better when we treat them how we want to be treated, right? That we would treat them with respect, that we acknowledge that even when they're young, that they're, they're, they're human from, you know, all the way through, that they're, they deserve to be treated with respect. Um, you know, we can train a toddler like we might a dog. We can, you know, like we can frighten them. We can yell at them. We can use the voice that you have, the alpha voice you're supposed to use with dogs, which I never could do very well. <laughs> I was terrible at that. Um, but we can kind of do this fear-induced thing. And we, we, often we will get a response, at least in the moment that we want, right? We might control the situation. Like say you have a three-year-old and you say, you know, you can go outside and it's raining out, it's muddy, but just wear your boots. Just leave them at the door when you come back in. You, know, you give them their set of instructions, but 
lo and behold, they come traipsing through the house in the mud. And so, you know, we could yell at them or scream at them, get intense with them, swat them, whatever, to, and maybe they'll remember that situation and not do it again. But they're making that choice based out of fear, not based out of wisdom or, okay, I understand, you know, why I need to not do this again. Which, uh, just to comment on that, I mean, I think, I think one of the things that was super helpful to me early on and that you helped me, Holly helped me realize is how much taller we are. And how, I mean, can you imagine seeing someone who's twice your height, three times your height, standing over you with a scowl? Like, that's pretty frightening stuff. And you, you just, we, we, I hadn't even thought about that from a three-year-old's perspective. Like, that's, that's, def, that's really, so even the simple thing of, Part of treating them with respect could be bending, making yourself small and speaking in a, in a soft voice. I mean, you're like, well, come on, Glenn, what about the Bible? What about the Bible? God became flesh. There is no greater condescension than the maker of the universe becoming a human, vulnerable baby. <laughs> And walking where we walked, suffering what we suffered. So when you think of that, you're like, oh yeah, that's parenting. Making myself small before them. There's also quite a bit of research that shows that any type of fear-induced behavioral change, it really doesn't develop self-regulatory skills. And what I mean by that is we want our children to have this internal sense of, you know, how to make the right choices, not just based on this external control. Um, And often when we do use those tactics, it often produces more aggression and anxiety in our kids. We want to teach them how to regulate. And, And along with that, that's kind of, you know, psychology language. But really, as they grow, we want them to... We hope that as they choose to accept the Lord and follow the Lord, that the Holy Spirit will be their inner guide, that they'll learn how to discern themselves which direction to go. Because when they leave our home, that's what what we want for them, right? We don't want them to only do what they're doing because my mom and dad said this, or I'm afraid of what the consequence will be, but they have this own internal sense of, and that they've along the way been able to make choices to figure out what direction to go. The, the trick is, as they get older, and we have two teenagers and one preteen. Um, I mean, we're reading everything we can. Well, you're reading everything you can and telling me about it. Um, <laughs> let's be honest. Um, <laughs> but, but I think the big aha moment for me, just being candid a, a, along the way, is recognizing that there are so many times when I'm addressing something like it's a character issue when it's actually a brain chemistry issue. Like, I'm like, you're being, you know, why, why are you being aggressive to your sister? And it's like, well, he just spent two hours with 12 other dudes on her soccer pitch where the coach was yelling in their face to be aggressive. And he's flooding with testosterone and he comes home and I'm supposed to, he's supposed to be like gentle, meek and mild, you know, <laughs> like it, it's, it doesn't quite work like that. So there are things to be aware of that there are early on in that preteen stuff. There's a, there are floods of testosterone that are hard to regulate. Um, that, that if adults had those sur- sudden surges and washes that you're like, I don't know what's going on. Or like um, if one of our daughters was like very, very upset about something, the last thing I should say is, hey, man, you're overreacting. You know, I have done that as a dad of teenage daughters. Big mistake. You don't say that. You don't say you're overreacting. You just say, okay, tell me why this is upsetting to you. Or you just sit and wait, you know. <laughs> Till it's over. And you're like, okay, all right. 
I have no idea what I said. But there's these, these teenage moments, and, and I think, well, say more about the teenage brain thing. Yeah. yeah, so we're in the midst of learning more a lot more about the teenage brain, so I'll just say a couple of things. Um, I think one, one term that an author used that I read is she talked about our brains being under construction, or sorry, teens' brains being under construction, and that was really helpful to me. I think it gave me a little more compassion, empathy for where they're at, that like, the, yeah, oh, and yeah, teenage brain and and many writers um, and psychologists who talk about this is often from 12 to 24. That's kind of the broad range because really it's until 25 that we are considered to have an adult brain. For boys, I'm sure it's later. (laughs) (laughs) Be fully developed. (laughs) Um, But teens are often, they're living more um, in their amygdala, which is more of the reptilian brain. And their prefrontal cortex is more of the adult part of the brain. And so that's just, they're kind of going in and out of really being able to stay there, really being able to think clearly. So, you know, when we're seeing our preteens, teens be moody or stomp off or, yeah, just, you know, like have an all-out emotional um, drama reaction that that it helps me to go, okay, their brain's under construction. This isn't just them choosing to be defined or choosing, like Glenn talked about, like just not having good character. Um, and another thing that's really helped me have more empathy, compassion for this changes in their brains are that they actually, 12 to 24 year olds actually don't have as much dopamine as adults have. And so they're actually seeking that out. So that, you know, whether that's socially or through activity or Every text adventure. message is a dopamine hit. Every, you know. And so, you know, I think, I think in the past, maybe I had thought, oh, this is just a, like, this is what culture does when our kids get drawn into culture, that they're just, they feel like, oh, I need to do what everybody else is doing, or I need to do this and do that, and they might not, you know, want to spend as much time at home, but to understand that it really is a chemical thing in the brain, that they're craving that and wanting that, and so as parents, we have this opportunity to come alongside them and encourage them in things that will be healthy, ways to seek that out, right, that they're chemically, they want to do that like not cliff jumping but yeah hanging out with a friend or you know a healthy friend doing a fun activity and for some teens you know they might they they might really want to seek those thrill things more and some maybe not as much there's a big spectrum there but but we can come alongside and encourage healthy choices in that way you know when I was thinking about this idea of not squeezing everything and seeing it as oh that's a character flaw that I have to address and train but understanding the the complexity of our chemistry as human beings I was thinking about the story of Elijah in the Old Testament. Do you remember this? Elijah goes, has this amazing, like, calls down fire from heaven, right? Fire from heaven. How dare you, prophets of Baal? It's amazing. And then he he goes in this cave, and he's like, I'm going to die. (laughs) And he's like, God, my life is worthless. Just take me now. I mean, he's like, like, Elijah, like, you are a moody teenage boy. Like, what is going on? And you know what God does when God shows up and finds Elijah in this like spiral? He says, lay down and sleep. And then when he wakes up, the angel of the Lord appears with fresh bread. Basically, take a nap, have a snack, and then let's talk. And so much of those moments as parents is like, this is not the moment. And again, occupational hazard of being a preacher and being preacher's kids is I'm very good at training and instruction via lecturing. (laughs) But sometimes the best thing to do in that moment is to say, I'm going to let you ride this one out. Go ahead and go to your room. Totally fine. When you get out, I'll make you a sandwich. And then we'll say, hey, 
you want to talk about that? <laughs> Take a nap, have a snack, then let's talk. <laughs> okay, we got it. Speaking of having to talk, we need to talk about the elephant in the room, and that is the rod. When y'all said what you think of when you think of discipline, you said spanking. And the question before us is, does the Bible give us a mandate to spank? And I want to say, this is, this is going to be one of those sections of the sermons where you say, I need to think about this one. That's okay. Again, the idea is don't do it because Glenn and Holly said so. Do it because you're pondering wisdom yourself, all right? Hebrew poetry, just a couple of general comments. Hebrew poetry uses a a number of techniques. One technique is something called metaphor. Now, if you remember from your English lit classes in high school or whatever, metaphor is when you compare two dissimilar objects without using the word like or as. The Lord is my rock. But the The key to interpreting metaphor is not to find 10 things similar between the two objects. You don't go, oh, he's a rock. Okay, Uh, what else? A rock is gray. A rock may be red. A rock is granite. A rock is geological. You know, and you're like, oh my gosh, like what? Uh, You've lost the plot all of a sudden. When two dissimilar objects are being compared, you find the one main thing that they have in common. What's the main thing about a rock and the Lord? Solid. Steadfast. Any other synonym for that? That's what we're talking about. Not all, all these. So when we get into some of these images in Proverbs, we have to say, what's this a metaphor of? Okay. Secondly, Hebrew poetry uses something called hyperbole. Hyperbole is an exaggerated statement to drive home a point. We don't use a lot of hyperbole in our conversation with others. Well, sometimes we do. We're like, man, I could have died. Or, man, that team destroyed the other team. I guess we do use hyperbole. <laughs> but not often when we're trying to teach. So Jesus, Jesus said, unless you hate your mother and father, you can't follow me. And you're like, whoa, Jesus? I thought you were the preacher of love. We're supposed to love our enemies but hate our parents? If you're a Western literalist, you're going to have problems with some of these hyperboles in scriptures. So love enemies, hate parents. Got it, Jesus. What? And until you recognize, no, no, no. Hate your parents is a, is a hyper, hyperbolic way of Jesus saying, give me your whole allegiance. Don't let anything about your life and story keep you from following me. That, that's what we're meant to see. So Proverbs uses hyperbole over and over again, particularly about the rod. I want you to see a few verses. Proverbs thirteen twenty four: Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline. What's the main idea through the hyperbole and through the metaphor. Discipline is an expression of love. Thank you. That's right. Discipline is an expression of love. Great. That's the main point. Proverbs twenty two fifteen. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. What's the main point? I would suggest it's that discipline is necessary because children are foolish. So discipline is necessary. Uh, by the way, the thing about discipline being ex- an expression of love, that means discipline, like Holly already said, is not meant to be reactive or in anger or because we're embarrassed. Right? It's got to be love. Proverbs 29.15, a rod and a reprimand impart wisdom, but a child left undisciplined disgraces their mother. What's the main idea there? That discipline is what enables societies to function without a shame or to live in an honorable society. Once we impart wisdom, dis- discipline, we're able to impart or, or, or reproduce or multiply honor. Now, if you were to look at, well, what is the Hebrew word rod? It actually just means a stick. It's the same word used for a walking stick, a stick to write in the ground, a stick to restrain, uh, a stick to fight, 
a stick to hit. It's just a stick. So we have to do more than language work on like what does this word literally mean. We have to do some image work. Where else do you see the word rod in the Old Testament? What does it say, Psalm 23? Your rod and your staff, they beat the snot out of me. Your rod and your staff scare the heck out of me. Your rod and your staff make me tremble. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What are we missing about this? That this is about a kind of discipline that is an expression of care and that care produces comfort. You know, the other story where I think of, I think of a rod is Moses and a rod. What did Moses do with his rod? He was right when he stretched it out and made a way. But he was wrong when he struck the rock. Selah. <laughs> think on these things. The right use of the rod opened up a way to a new future. The wrong use of the rod was in anger and it struck and hit. I want to pastorally encourage you to reflect on this and to consider. I don't think the Bible gives you a mandate to spank. I think the Bible gives you an instruction to discipline to discipline, to disciple. And in fact, so much of what we learn from developmental stuff is sometimes not only are we not doing what we hope for, but we're actually doing damage by doing this. The gentle shepherd's rod of restraint, a little bit of pressure to restrain, a little bit of pressure to prod, a little bit of pressure to guide, that's the idea not inflicting punitive pain. And some of you are like, you grew up in church, like, oh, I, thought, I just thought the Bible told me I had to. The Bible's not telling you you have to. The Bible's telling you you have to disciple your kids. And that discipleship involves discipline, but discipline does not mean beating. Think on these things. There are too many people who have grown up in Christian homes who this was just used carte blanche as an excuse for parents to just let it rip on their kids. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. I'm so sorry that happened to you in Christian schools or Christian homes. But I want to redeem the idea of discipline so that we can, we can say with the psalmist, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. All right. Are we good? Think on that. All right. All right, we're getting to the end here. The final, the third movement of this talk. Oh, what's our hope as parents? You want to read that proverb? Yeah. Yeah. Proverbs seventeen six says, Children's children are a crown to the aged, and parents are the pride of your children. Uh, the truth is here is that, I mean, we're all going to fail. We know we failed. We know we're going to fail again. Um, but there is such power, I think, in apologizing and in coming um, to our kids and saying, you know, I'm so sorry that I raised my voice to you or I got intense with you. And this is something that hasn't been as familiar, comfortable to me. And so it's been a practice that even in our marriage and with our kids to come and say, I have nothing uh, to apologize in our oh, marriage. Right, right, right. No, definitely not. True. That's the secret to 20 years, right? No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, 
but to come to them and say, I'm, you know, honey, I'm so sorry. Like I, you know, I really got intense there. I said some things that I wish I wouldn't have said. And so I just think the, the, you know, seeing this bigger, larger, um, sometimes our kids think we're perfect or we don't make mistakes, you know, coming to them and saying, you know, this is what I've done wrong. This, that power of redemption in our relationships is what continues to keep that connection. So good. Last night we had Linda uh, take pictures of our kids and mm-hmm. my nephews who are in town with my parents. It was like a grandparent, grandkid kind of photo shoot. And I was thinking of this proverb, children's children are a crown to the aged. Like that's the hope, you know. But the way we, that our hope of arriving at that moment is not because, uh, is not a hope that will happen because we've been perfect. Um, in fact, our hope that that will happen is the grace of God <laughs> and the grace of God alone and I love what you're saying about apologizing. I remembered some distinct moments of my parents coming to my room. And say, I'm so sorry. I really lost my temper. I re-, you know, and and recognizing that our the, the legacy that we give our kids is not our perfection, but our willingness to repent. Because the real legacy is the power of the gospel, <laughs> not our perfect parenting record. We're all, our kids are all going to end up in counseling. It's good. It's probably, it's probably good, actually. We should all go to counseling. In fact, it leads to this next, this last thing. Proverbs thirteen twenty two: A good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. Ken, if you can help me out here. A couple weeks ago, Holly and I were having breakfast with a couple who's about 10 years ahead of us, and it's a good practice to have, you know, is to just get to people who are farther along life and their kids are mostly out of the home and some with some are doing really well, some are having a really hard time. And, and so we were asking them, like, what, what can you pass on to us? What can we learn? And they said, um, I said, honestly, the best thing you can do for your kids is deal with your own stuff. And he said their counselor, their counselor gave them this illustration of you're going to hand a backpack off to your kids. The proverb says you're going to leave an inheritance. You're going to leave something. You're going to hand a backpack off to your kids. Whether you like it or not, you're giving them a backpack. The question is, what's in it? (laughs) And as much unpacking as you can do, as much unpacking as you can do, the lighter the pack will be for them. And I think about this, you know, someone came up to me who was a single person after the 9 a.m. said, Glenn, challenge the single people. Don't wait until they become married or have parents. Like, just unpack your backpack now. (laughs) Unpack your backpack now. It's great. The, the, the sooner you do it, the lighter the load will be that you, when you pass it on to other people. Unpack your stuff now. Uh, recently, this summer, um, did you want to jump in on that? Yeah, go ahead first. I, I think what, some of the things that we mean by that are like becoming self-aware. Like what are you feeling? What are your emotions? What are, what's all the stuff, as EHS would say, you know, under the iceberg? What are the things that maybe you thought, oh, you know, this wasn't so great about how I was raised or just, and be just willing to be honest with that, that you didn't, none of us here had perfect parents, that there were things that I'm sure that happened that they wish they could change or that did happen. They've apologized. Maybe not whatever it is that, um, really coming to terms with how I've been raised and how those things have impacted me because we will, if without dealing with that, we will pass those things down. So recently this summer, the kids had come back from youth group and they're, you know, yucking it up with each other and they're getting snacks out and it's like 10 o'clock at night and I know that they're leaving on a trip the next day and I'm feeling this like thing of like, you haven't packed and you're going to leave your dirty dishes around, you know. So I start like, hey guys, don't you think you should start packing? And they're like, <laughs> and they're like talking, you know. And, 
and it goes, and it just keeps going, you know, it keeps going, and I'm like, guys, like, it's getting late, like, you need to pack, you're leaving early in the morning, you know, and, and finally, like, they're looking at me like, dad, why, why are you reacting so strongly? And Sophia's like, dad, I think you're being triggered right now. This is the backfiring thing of living with a counselor, you know, but but I, she was right, of course, and I, and I was, didn't want to, I was like, no, I just think you need to be ready for this trip, you know? And, uh, and I have Sophia's permission to tell this story, um, but the next morning I you know, had a little bit of time and I was reflecting on this and we had just heard this whole unpack your backpack thing. And I was like, man, why, why am I such a like stress ball all the time? You know, like always putting pressure on the kids to be ready to you know? And I just felt like the Lord took me back to this moment of I was 17 years old when I left home in Malaysia, said goodbye to my parents and my friends, and got on an airplane by myself and flew across the ocean to go to college. And there's no fault of anyone's. It was the choices that we all made. But I recognize that all my adult life I've lived with this pressure of like, I've got to make it happen. I've got to be prepared I've got to be ready. I've got to perform. Plus, I'm an Enneagram 3, so that doesn't help anything. You know, I've got, to, I've got to achieve. I've got to make this great. And I am handing that to my kids constantly. Like, you need to do that. You've got to be ready. Are, are, you, have you prepared? Are, are you ready for this? You, you know? And so I'm thinking about all of that. And I come home midday. And actually, their flight wasn't in the morning. It was later in the afternoon. But <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Thank you, Lord. Yeah. Um, and I come home, and Sophia's there, and she sees it all over my face. She's like, Dad, are you okay? And I'm like, no. I said, honey, I, I'm so sorry that I'm, like, always putting this pressure on you. Like, I live with this uncontrollable or just sort of mounting sense of, like, pressure cooker inside. And I'm, it's hard for me even on vacations to sit still because I'm like, what should I be doing right now? Should I read a new book? Should I write a new book? Should I, you know, should I? And, and, and. And I'm like, I have to release the pressure cooker in my own heart. But I said, I'm so sorry for putting that on you. And she, I'm crying, she's crying, and she comes over to give me a hug. And I'm, I say to her, I'm like, honey, you can be average. You can be mediocre. I'm like, you can fail. Like, it's okay, you know. And we're, and we're having this moment. That moment did more to impart wisdom than all the lecturing or disciplining or consequences or whatever in the world. Sometimes the best gift we give our children is not our perfection, but our repentance. Amen. Amen. Amen.